0: Hi, this is Chris Bolin from ADI Lumberyard, and you're listening to WGXC Acra Catskill Hudson.
1: This year's general election in New York begins October 29th and ends November 8th. October 14th is the last day to register to vote and to postmark an application to vote in the general election. Those mailed in applications to vote must be received by the Board of Elections by October 19th. Anyone honorably discharged from the military or who became a naturalized citizen after October 14th may register in person at the County Board of Elections Office up until October 29th. Applications to vote by absentee ballot must be received by October 24th, although military absentee ballot applications are accepted through October 29th. Anyone can apply for an absentee ballot in person through November 7th. Absentee ballots must be postmarked by November 8th and received by the County Board of Elections no later than November 15th. Go to the website for your county's Board of Elections for more details. WGXC underwriting support is provided in part by SunCommon, supporting vibrant communities across New York for 15 years, offering custom solar installations for homes, farms, and businesses. Information at suncommon.com
0: WGXE is made possible in part by the generous ongoing support of Henning's Local Test Kitchen in Round Top, New York. WGXE's sustaining supporters are among the station's most dedicated listeners. They care deeply about Creative Community Radio, and their investment helps to sustain WGXE as a public platform for information, experimentation, and engagement in Green and Columbia Counties. You too can become a sustaining supporter by going to wgxcorg donate. Thank you for your support. I'm
1: Jeff Van
2: trees and this is Mobilize News. We welcome you to our show as our guest today is Ed Gemell. Uh Ed recently launched uh, the new climate party uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, and we've also known Ed because uh, we had him on about a year ago, uh, because he is the managing director uh, for Scientists
3: Warning Europe.
2: So Ed, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Great to be with you, Jeff. It's nice to be back.
2: So let's just start out with uh, what your mission is and starting this new party. You know, we've had we're coming up to COP 27, uh, so we've now on the 27th annual climate uh, climate change summit from the United Nations, and we've had 26 of them, and not a whole lot has been done. So, uh, where where do you think we are in the uh, international uh, coalition to fight climate change, and what do you think your party can do in terms of getting involved in that?
3: Gosh, that's about three or four questions rolled into one, Jeff. Well. Um, starting on the on the international side of it, um, I mean, we've had 26 COPs now, um, and we pretty much ended up with a lack of action around the world, um, and it's not going to change at COP27. So we're not getting the level of international action we need uh, to solve the climate crisis. Um, the Paris Accord um, that was signed seven years ago was at the time a big compromise at the time. Um, it was based on data at the time that's been updated, such that there are more carbon emissions going on all the time. And the, um, the reason for us rushing towards decarbonisation has become even more urgent. Um, and at the same time, we've had governments giving their NDCs, their nationally determined contributions, so their voluntary and um, proposals for what they're going to do on carbon emissions. And in many cases, they've not followed them. So we're in a very bad state internationally. Um, that then has led to where can we get um, the best action? And for those of us that are based in any country around the world, it's often in our own country. So um, together with a lot of other supporters, uh, mentors and um, other people involved, we've launched the climate party. And the whole point is to focus on the situation in the UK, um, where although the UK is often um, mentioned internationally as actually being a leader, it's leading on completely the wrong pace um, often those in power don't quite understand what pace we need to be leading at and we need to up the game enormously. Um, from the point of view of the science, um, we've had the, um, we've been talking about 2050 net zero in the UK. It is absolutely clear that 2050, 2050 net zero will not cut it. Scientists warning Europe, as you mentioned in my day job, has written three times to the Prime Minister in the UK open letters in which in each case it has recommended 2030 as the target that may keep us safe from climate change. And that's based on the carbon emissions going into the atmosphere, the urgency with which we need to bring them back before we go past our carbon budget for 1.5 degrees. And that carbon budget for 1.5 degrees will be shot in 2028 based on the last IPCC report. So in 2028, based on what the IPCC is saying, we'd have to turn off the lights, shut down all the factories in 2028, otherwise we're gonna go past 1.5 degrees. And between 1.5 and two degrees, we risk losing a lot of the global tipping points. There's been a lot of talk about that in scientific papers recently, and that's extremely dangerous with an unraveling of the climate crisis. But in addition, particularly on a national basis, there is the opportunity to grab the moment. So businesses worldwide, but particularly in the UK, where there's a lot of action on, on ecotech and eco-finance, they want to get a target that they can aim at and grab the leadership. And from a British point of view, if we can go for a decarbonisation of the UK economy by 2030, that allows businesses to scale, to come in and get working on it, and we would be, the UK would be, the leader in eco-tech by 2030, it would be a leader in eco-finance, the city would have had to develop vast numbers of financial instruments to get the trillions of pounds or dollars into to finance that decarbonisation. And we'd also be a leader in social innovation, whether that's localization of energy resources or efficiencies and a whole lot of other factors. And we would be able to then be selling that to the rest of the world. who could effectively be buying it off the shelf.
2: Wow. Well, how do you plan on competing against the two major parties in the UK? We got the, the uh, Labour Party and the uh, Conservative Party. Uh, what are What is your strategy for how to compete with them?
3: Um, we laid out our strategy actually quite plainly currently, and I, I'll sort of um, answer it in a roundabout way. So there are 650 um, seats up for grabs in the UK, so 650 members of Parliament in Westminster. Um, we have said that we will be competing with the Conservative Party in their 100 weakest seats. That's what we call marginal seats, where they have anything from a few dozen, a few hundred votes above the second place up to maybe about 7,000. So we're going to take them on in those hundred places. We're also going to take on 19 Conservative MPs who are part of a group called the Net Zero Scrutiny Group um, in Parliament. And these are climate sceptics, people who want us to do less about climate change and draw back from all the action that we're doing. Altogether, because of overlap, that's 110 seats. So the strategy is. Effectively, to take on the Conservatives in 110 seats. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not taking on the others, we are. Um, Labour will also be competing in all of those seats, and often the Liberal Democrats and other parties like the Green Party as well. But the whole point is to put pressure um, on the Conservatives to move further on climate action, and particularly at the moment where they're rowing back from it. Um, In addition, we are a centre-right party. So in the UK, that means we are pro-climate and pro-business at the same time. We want to solve the, the climate crisis with the right scientific target, and at the same time grab that commercial opportunity, which is so obvious. The biggest business opportunity on the entire planet is clearly to decarbonize. It's where we're all going, we've all got to go there. And what we want to do is to make sure that Britain grabs that, and we have that opportunity for all of the enterprises in the UK, and effectively see an economic uplift from it. In relation to the two parties, um, what it means is we're taking on the incumbents at the moment in their weakest seats. We will additionally be taking on Labour in those seats as well, but we're wanting to press the agenda. So we've already seen in what happened in the Labour Party conference two weeks ago, um, is it looked like the Labour Party had gone and taken the playbook of the Climate Party as announced a month before and started repeating some of it in their presentations at the conference. So they talked about moving forward climate ambition. They used the language of um, deep decarbonisation and commercial opportunity. Um, In addition, they brought in one particular measure saying that they're going to decarbonise the energy system in the UK by 2030, whereas the Climate Party is saying decarbonise the whole of our economy by 2030. But in saying they're going to decarbonise the energy system, they're clearly talking about a large part of the economy, although only about 21% depending on how you look at it in the UK. Um, It also, though, looks, when Labour brought that out, as if they were decarbonising everything. It had that feel for the electorate, like that was the biggest thing and they were doing it all, but it's only a fifth. But already by bringing out our policies, we're starting to push the parties forward and make them more ambitious on their own.
2: Yeah, I just want to touch on one thing that you mentioned. Uh, You said that the Climate Party is a centre-right party. Uh, here in the States, that seems like kind of an alien concept because the way that our political discourse has devolved uh, over the last uh, number of years, uh, being pro-business or center-right would pretty much automatically me- make you a climate uh, denier. And that is not the case in the UK. So if you could just kind of explain you know, what that means, especially when we're talking about when you say pro-business, uh, climate policy would require some regulation of business so at least here in the states being pro-business means for the most part if you're if you if you're a politician identifying as pro-business then you're not going to be in favor of climate policy so if you could kind of square that for us uh, to provide some clarification especially for our viewers here in the states
3: sure i mean i am not an expert on what's going on in the united states um i suppose that the first bit of it is is that british politics may be played a little bit more in the center than what appears to be going on in the states although becoming more extreme at the moment with the Conservative Party veering off to the right in its its latest policies. Um, The idea, though, that pro-business and pro-climate go together is, is just very, very clear. And I really can't understand it, and neither can all of my colleagues and the candidates and others in the Climate Party, why we aren't talking about this again as the biggest business opportunity on the planet. When you go and talk to businesses and pretty much since the launch of the Climate Party, but even before, I was talking to quite a number of businesses, be they in the city, be they FMCG, be they in the energy sector or in in motor cars. And in all these cases, they're often saying what we want is certainty. If you give us certainty, we will go for it. Now, it wasn't this company that that said it, but just as an example, if you go to the management of Unilever and you say to them, right, if we're going to set a 2030 target for decarbonisation in the UK, would you go for it? And I bet you they'll say, you yes, and we can do it. And we'd expect to lead the world in doing it when we do it. But they're not going to do that if we don't have a policy across the whole country that that's where everyone's going. Because in the short term, they would expect their competitors, Reckitt Benckiser, Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, to get ahead by cutting corners and doing things in a, in a more polluting way um, in the initial stages. But if we've leveled the playing field, business is ready to do it. So, It really is about gripping that business opportunity. Also, if we look internationally at the moment, we have some very notable countries talking about 2060 and 2070 net zero targets, with a lot of countries talking about 2050. But if Britain goes for it, and all of its commercial enterprises go for it, and we decarbonise by 2030, firstly, we'll have shown the world it can be done, and we'll have all the innovations ready to go to sell to them. But the rest of the world has got to go there. It is absolutely 100 percent, if we're going to survive on this planet, that everybody is going to go there. And those targets are very, very likely to be coming forward. Why? Because the climate impacts we're seeing are getting worse and they're accelerating. So climate scientists are are often shocked when a couple of years after a prediction, the thing's actually worse than they said it was going to be a couple of years before. So with these things crowding in, all of those targets will come forward. And they'll also come forward if Britain has proved it can get there. And by Britain, I mean if Britain's businesses have proved they can get there, if Britain's financial sector has proved it can finance us getting there, um, then we'll move there. And we have um, amongst the the proponents in the UK, we have a a conservative peer called Lord Frost, who has a lot of economic arguments on how we should be running our country and how we should be doing business here. And he seems to see that climate change and action on climate and on decarbonisation, um, and action on, on the green agenda is actually holding back business. I, I just can't understand it. It seems to me the absolute opposite. Apply all the normal principles of business, level the playing field, allow business to get at it. I think the one last aspect of government policy is when government has a has a uh, an agenda that it has to reach, which is a 2030 decarbonisation target. It puts its procurement into it. And government procurement is a pretty big thing in all of our countries. And once government procurement is going into that area and government procurement is on the 2030 target, that starts to unlock a lot of doors in private enterprise and that can filter out into the private sector as well.
2: Uh, What is the party's uh, platform on international uh, policy? Because there's some people that would say, You know, you can cut emissions in the UK, you can cut emissions in much of the developed world. But as long as China is continuing to pollute at at a rapid pace, and as long as we're continuing to uh, have deforestation in the Amazon, uh, there's really not much that we can do to avert disaster.
3: Right. Well, I think think there's a couple of different aspects of it. And if you don't mind me being fracturally facetious at the beginning, uh, I mean, if I'm in a playground with a load of other kids and I'm a kid, then just because the other kids are chucking paper and plastic on the floor, it doesn't mean I should. I should still take it and put it in the bin or in the recycling. So, so if we're looking at China and saying that you know if China doesn't do anything, we shouldn't. I'm sorry, we're a kid in the playground and we should be doing the right thing right at the beginning. Um, I think the second part of it is is by reaching that target and showing it can be done, we will firstly inspire others. We'll show that it can be done. So China, China will notice. If Britain gets on the way towards decarbonizing by 2030 and looks like it's gonna make it, China will notice. I bet in the initial stages, it'll be supplying us with a lot of the things we need to do it. Although in the later stages, those things will have to be made here. We'll have to make the tech in Britain, We'll have to make it decarbonized, We'll have to make it sustainable, and we won't want it traveling lots of miles over from China as well. So there'll be an effect directly onto Chinese businesses that they're going to notice. I think the other part of it, of course, is that having got there, um, Britain will have had to innovate in every single area in order to get there. And that's not just the mechanical engineering tech innovation. It's also financial products and it's also social innovation, as mentioned earlier. So localization, working out to do things more efficiently, working out how we share, use um, and create circular and sustainable economy that we need. So so the first thing is, is we have to get our own house in order immediately. Um By doing that, we can inspire others, and we can also be giving them off-the-shelf products that they can buy, or off-the-shelf systems that they can buy to get their own house in order quicker.
2: Uh, How is your party uh, getting funded, and what is your strategy for uh, uh, continuing to get funding in this election and other elections going forward?
3: Um, I don't think you'll be surprised to hear, and I don't think we're giving anything away, to say at the beginning of launching the party, funding is limited. So but we now have uh, we're putting in place a program to uh, do fundraising. We're aiming to raise 10 million pounds to fight the next general election in order to fund our 110 candidates. We're in discussions uh, with philanthropists, so wealthy individuals uh, that may be interested in giving us money. And we're also in touch with corporates. Um, We will start then crowdfunding campaigns, both centrally and for individual constituencies. So the areas where the MPs are going to get elected from, and they will raise money locally as well. And so we, are, we already have the opportunity for donations on our website. So it is possible already for anybody who is watching this broadcast to go to the website, so www.theclimate.party, and press on the donate or support buttons and then donate. And for donations up to £500, which is pretty close to $500 these days with the pounds collapse, and with donations up to £500, they can come just from anywhere. But over £500, people must be resident in the UK or be a corporate resident in the UK. But all those plans are in place. We've got a pretty professional volunteer team currently. And as we raise funds, we will turn that into a fully professional central office.
2: You know, I just want to touch on something you said. You said that uh corporations are donating to the climate party that uh, seems like such an alien concept uh, to what we might expect here in the states can you tell us what corporations uh, are interested in uh, donating to your party and uh, promoting sustainability
3: okay um right right now in terms of those we're in discussions with i won't say the exact names or anything else like that but um but we've been talking to quite a number of, of corporations that both doing environmental tech But also those that are not just literally corporations doing standard business, trying to do the right thing in the environmental sphere with their own emissions and things. So they're aware. um, But what they want to do is they want to see Britain um, getting the right target and they want to see a level playing field for business. So that's why they're looking at investing. Um, I think there's a second reason why they might donate or make an investment into the climate party um, is businesses and individuals, be they billionaire philanthropists or the man on the street. Um, can actually donate to as many parties as they like. So there are also discussions that are happening with donors who donate to other parties, who might also want to donate to the climate party because we're single issue. We're working on the most important issue that ever has, I don't know, been competed for in an election. I mean, this is a matter of survival based on scientific evidence. At the same time, it's the biggest business opportunity on the planet That needs grabbing now rather than leaving until we're too late in 10 or 20 years time so businesses are looking at it um such that they might um donate to us but also donate to one of the other big parties as well
2: yeah and if you could just kind of walk us through the the role of third parties in the uk because you know here in the states we often think of third parties as being spoiler parties that usually hurt whatever of the two main parties they're closest to so of course we are Familiar with Ralph Nader in the two thousand election, which many uh, you know has been attributed to Al Gore losing that election. Uh, can you tell us uh, what is the role of third parties in the UK, uh, and uh, to what extent do they affect the two main parties?
3: Okay, um, the the word spoiler party wouldn't actually be my favorite way of describing it, but the um, so what we are is a single issue party where effectively we're going out to put pressure. On the Conservative Party, but particularly, um, or the two main parties, but particularly the Conservative Party, to get the right targets in relation to climate and the biodiversity crisis and decarbonisation. And um, so that's our aim. Now, within the whole political spectrum, if those parties took on 2030 as the decarbonisation target that they wanted for their own party, if that was in their manifestos and was head policy for the coming elections, Then effectively, we'd probably have done our job. I'm I'm being a bit glib because we'd have to look at the details of what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, um, if we can be sure they're going to do it. But that's the aim. So we're out to put pressure on them to pick up the right policies and to do the right thing. And if they don't, we'll replace them and then we'll make sure that those policies are brought in. And there is an example um, in the past, recent past in the U.K., Um, And it's not one that we've been talking about until some members of the press started talking about it. But UKIP and the Brexit Party effectively put pressure on the Conservative Party here um, and turned the Conservative Party essentially into the Brexit Party um, and Brexit was achieved. Now, I don't I'm not going to express an opinion on Brexit um, on this show. And in fact, my, my opinion is summed up by saying that it doesn't matter which side of the bus you're on when the bus goes off the cliff. Um, because we're concentrated on grabbing the wheel and stopping the bus going off the cliff. So rather than calling ourselves a spoiler party, it's there to put pressure on the main parties and pressure on leaders in government to get the right targets, to do the right thing in the right timing. And if they don't, we'll replace them.
2: There's another uh, party in the UK called the Green Party that has uh, a similar uh, climate-based platform. Can you tell us how the climate party, your party, is different than the Green Party?
3: Yes, certainly. I mean, from from the the good point for the Green Party is its net zero target is 2030. So they're on the right track in terms of the scientific target. Having said that, the Green Party is distracted by many, many other issues. It covers every single issue, like all of the other political parties as well. So, for instance, in the last election, it set its stall out very much on remain um, in the Brexit debate. And it had a lot of time talking about that, whereas we are single issue. We're going to keep focused on the most important issue of the day and the most important issue of tomorrow. um, And that's what we're working on. And the other part is that the Green Party in the UK would be seen as being on the left of the political spectrum. um, And traditionally in the UK, and I suspect that may be similar in a lot of countries, um, is the, the climate action voice seemed to come out of the left. But that seemed to be extremely misleading because actually, in the UK, 82% of people are worried about the climate emergency and want more action. So it's not just a left wing proposition. Um, so, unlike the Green Party or on the left, we're very, very much centre right. We're very, very much pro business. And we see it as a vast and, um, economic and financial opportunity in climate change as well. So, that probably distinguishes us. Having said that, they have the right targets. And, um, you know, Caroline Lucas, they have an MP in Parliament who does a good job on climate. Um, If she wasn't distracted by everything else, she'd be doing a brilliant job.
2: Uh, What do you think the role of the United Nations is? You know, we've uh, expressed some disappointment at how not a whole lot has been accomplished uh, over the last number of decades that they've been uh, setting these uh, targets. And like you said at the top of the show, the IPCC report uh, is, is making things look like it's even more uh, threatening than it was previously. So uh, what do you think is the role of the United Nations and what uh, would your party's platform be with respect to um, leadership in the UN?
3: Gosh, uh, I think the United Nations does what it can, but I mean, essentially it's a voluntary body. I mean, it, it's everything that's done on climate um, is done after a compromise of nearly 200 countries. Um, it is able to, you know, Antonio Guterres does a good job at trying to raise the alarm Um, But he raises the alarm and doesn't really have any power to to force anything through afterwards. So so it's persuasive. um, It's a good platform for discussion. Um, Every step forward um, that we get at a COP or through the United Nations, um, often based on IPCC reports, is a good step forward. So there's nothing bad about it, but it isn't enough. Uh, We're not seeing the level of action we need. Countries aren't even complying with their voluntary contributions. Um, we aren't going to get there and see survival on the planet um, through the UN. so we have to take responsibility for it in our own countries. We have to force our legislature and our government uh, to get the right proposals in place, right policies in place and we have to do that down at lower levels of government as well whether it's in I mean in the states and state government in the UK and county or metropolitan boroughs or cities. Uh, we have got to get all levels of government moving forward. We cannot rely on the UN however much it is trying to do the right work.
2: Uh, have you seen any examples of this being done successfully at one issue climate party uh, in other countries?
3: Uh, well, I mean, uh, the, the example that is, is current, although it's not exactly the same as us, is the rise of what they call the Teal independence in Australia. So now Teal is a name given to a group of independent candidates. I think initially there are about 20 of them. Um, and they were they were named the Teals. Now the Teal Independents um, in Australia managed to take seven seats off the uh, dominant conservative parties. Um, and their strategy was slightly different to ours in the sense that they went into the heartland of the conservatives, where they had total majorities, so where they were absolutely dominant electorally. And the Teal Independents went in and took. Uh, took them apart on exactly their own territory. So the Teal Independents, again, are effectively centre-right. They were based on three major issues. Climate was number one, and if I'm correct, then integrity and in politics um, and women's rights. And They pursued those forward in these very, very uh, right-of-centre constituencies, and they won in seven of them. Um, in addition, they drew a lot of um, effort and funds for the Conservative parties into those areas, Um, allowing other parts of Australia to be less well defended, let's say, by the Conservatives, with the result that the Conservatives lost power um, and the Teals, although not in power, are now influential um, in the centre part of Australian politics. So so they would be the best example. Um, We've been in touch with them. We've been exchanging notes with them, um, and we're inspired by them. Um, It's rather different in terms of electoral system. I mean, our first-past-the-post system is very different To Australia's system which is more proportional representation and your vote always counts and also in Australia everybody has to vote so if you don't go out to vote you get fined and what that will mean is you're getting a lot of voters out that might not be so likely to vote in Britain it tends to be that young people don't come out to vote as much I hope that will change and any young people watching be they in the states or in the uh, UK or anywhere else these are the last elections coming up now in which we can save the planet so get out to vote don't wait on everybody else to do it. It is really, really essential to get up and get out there and go and vote. But in Australia, if you don't get up and go and vote, you get fined. So there was a bit of an extra push there. So that would be the I mean, the biggest example. And um, we've, we've looked at some of the things that the Australian teals are doing. And without getting into their strategy that won them in those places, we're going to be incorporating some of them into what we're doing.
2: Really fascinating discussion. We're just about out of time, so I think we're going to have to leave it there. But definitely check out uh, Ed and check out uh, the Climate Party uh, and all the uh, all the great work that you're doing uh, trying to make a difference in the world. So, Ed, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Jeff, it's always a pleasure. I look forward to next time. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.
2: Awesome. Thanks so much. Again, check out the Climate Party. Uh, check us out at mobilize.news. Thank you so much, everyone. Take care. Bye.
4: You are listening.
3: Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is our collaborator and your host,
2: Anne Levine.
0: Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring conversations with influential people in Ukraine and important scholars in Slavic studies. I am your host, Anne Levine, reporting from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Our guest, Pavlo Kuchta, was the Minister of Economy to President Petro Poroshenko and to President Volodymyr Zelensky. He is a board member of the I Am Not Alone Charitable Foundation and a graduate of Kiev Polytechnic Institute and studied at Aspen Institute, Kiev. Kukta is an economist at the Center for Economic Solutions. He cooperated with the Reanimation Package of Reforms. From 2015 to 2019, he worked as an advisor to the Minister of Finance. From 2016 to 2019, he was an advisor to the Prime Minister of Ukraine. From September 2019 to April 2020, Kuchta served as the first Deputy Minister of Economic Development, Trade, and Agriculture. He is the co-author of Reforms in Ukraine After Revolution of Dignity, Tilda Publishing, 2019. Pablo describes the first few days of the war and his life-altering experience as a soldier fighting on the front. Hello, Hello, so- Pablo. Can you tell me about your 242? What was the 24th of February like for you?
4: We woke up at 5 a.m. whenever the missiles started hitting to the sounds of explosions. Among various people in Ukraine connected to the security establishment, political circles, etc. There were some rumors that there might be an attack. Of course, uh, this was not the first time, but we were tense. We had some things gathered in case we would need to leave. Uh, So the moment we woke up, we knew that, yes, this time it was right. Uh, And we started monitoring what's going on try connecting to people, you know, trying to understand what's actually happening, what's the situation, how is it unfolding. Uh, And we stayed, we did not leave on 24th. We were not really inclined to leave, but we were afraid that Kiev might be encircled. So on 25th, we evacuated Lviv and stayed there for a while. And uh, after that, I joined the military. And then things kind of stabilized, and I'd say our normal life during war, started if you can call it normal
0: in one of your interviews on the 26th of february you said you were going to go to the front and you would be fighting can you tell me about that experience
4: Mm, it was after we evacuated so i I actually went to the military commission the day we came to leave and they were not taking people so there was a crowd of men and the military guys were saying like you sir are you a veteran no go away (laughs) we'll call you up uh, then in a couple of weeks, I contacted my friends, uh, my former colleagues who were actually fighting there in one of the units and asked to join and joined them as volunteer for a time.
0: What was that like?
4: Hmm. Well, you know, it's a profound experience in a way. This changes you. It, it's a sort of test, I'd say. Uh, some shades of nature probably only be uncovered under extreme danger. There is this strange feeling... Actually, I told this to Yulia, my wife, and then she quoted it in her book, The Fight of Our Lives. There is this very strange feeling. The first time I was in actual combat, we were specifically targeted by the Russians. So this uh, feeling when everything goes away, and it's very calm, quiet, and very nice, (laughs) strangely enough. So under the fear, the pressure of what's happening, there is this very calm and good feeling because everything goes away, right? In this situation, all your worries and everything, except what's happening, going around you, disappears. and It's it's a very strange feeling. So extreme danger on one hand and calmness and serenity, I'd say, on the other. So I guess that was my uh, experience. First time I went into action and we got into a real dangerous situation. We were directly targeted by the Russians.
3: Prior
0: to fighting, were you afraid?
4: Mm, Yes, to some extent, but probably more worried under very heavy pressure. You know, like, you immediately need to do a lot of stuff. You need to make a lot of decisions. The decisions are quite important because they can mean life or death. Like it did for some people, right, who decided to stay and then came under a Russian occupation and were murdered. So it's tough. Everyone is nervous. So the situation is developing all the time. Like, uh, you know, had to get hold of my wife. We had to agree on what we were doing. Had to grab hold of several other people whom we helped to evacuate get them on board you know everyone is panicking no one understands really what's going on the first two days were very hectic and the russian attempt to take the airports near kiev Uh, on some ukrainian social media there was information that the russians were defeated but in fact at the same time on cnn the correspondent was transmitting live and he was standing like 20 meters away from russian paratroopers who were there and fortunately they failed in their first uh, attempt they were ultimately dispersed by Ukrainian special operations forces, and they were defeated there. Yeah, Actually, in- I went back to Kiev. We drove some supplies to the military guys. Uh, so I was there when it was besieged, and it was very eerie. I've lived in the city my whole life, so I know it pretty well. And it was the first time I saw it empty. It was besieged. It was dangerous to walk the streets in the dark because everyone was very nervous, and there were snipers on the roof. There were guards everywhere. People were trigger-happy. Many of them were civilians who just joined territorial defense or were mobilized immediately. There were Russian saboteurs operating in the city, so everyone was afraid. It was a really very, very strange atmosphere in the town.
0: As a politician who had been in Zelensky's cabinet and having a girlfriend, Yulia Mandel...
4: My wife now. (laughs) Right.
0: ...who was Mm -hmm. Zelensky's press secretary... Did either one of you have any sort of insight into this? Did you believe at all that it was coming?
4: I'd say yes. We were more or less on the same page with With what political circles were thinking. We expected some kind of escalation, but we expected escalation in Donbass. We expected that they would, would attack in Donbass against the military units stationed there. And the various hybrid attacks, cyber, escalation of information warfare, more cyber rattling along the borders. This kind of hybrid escalation, like the Russians practiced before, uh, that they would just blatantly attack like they did was discounted because it was not rational in terms of what they expected the outcome of their invasion would be. And actually, this thinking, in a way, proved to be right, because generally, the military gear were saying that the forces the Russians gathered are not enough to successfully overrun Ukraine. What they've gathered is not enough to win. And they did suffer a defeat because of that. They were completely unprepared for the resistance they would face. They suffered huge losses in the first few days of invasion, though kind of gut feeling, I guess, was telling me that, yeah, but I did not believe it at the time. I guess always trust your gut. (laughs) That's the lesson (laughs) from the Russian-Ukrainian war.
0: Wow, that's the lesson. So you were the minister of finance.
4: Acting minister of economy. It was economy and agriculture at the time.
0: Well, what's happening in the economy in Ukraine now?
4: This is probably one of the most important questions. The economy is, of course, in very bad shape. It's on life support. It is totally supported by the West. So half of what Ukraine spends is covered by Western assistance. And most of the arms and ammunition and a lot of supplies for the military also come as Western assistance. Uh, so at this point, what's fighting Russia is actually not just Ukraine, but the system where Ukraine is doing the fighting and the West is keeping Ukraine fighting. And this victory that is kind of being achieved on the ground militarily in the last month is actually a victory of this coalition. Because, of course, Ukraine, simply by its own resources, would not have been able to stand as, as it did, by its own. But this Western support keeps the state running and fighting, but it cannot support the population, right? So the people are suffering. Of course, the loss of income is huge, the unemployment. And even if they have jobs, for example, these jobs might not be paying anything right now. That can be up to one-third of all people. The borders are still closed, so millions of people were working abroad. Businessmen need to travel constantly to restore some semblance of business life. And going forward, this will be even more of a question. So let's say some kind of ceasefire is reached with Russians. We understand to make this sustainable, right? Not to let this happen again with Russia reinvading several years from now. Ukraine needs to become strong and integrated into EU and NATO, or at least into the EU. And for that to happen, the economy needs to be modernized and it needs to grow quickly. An economic miracle has to happen, like it happened in Poland and other Eastern European countries. So it's not without precedent, but it has to be repeated. And for that, the two main potential problems would be the, you know, Ukraine's domestic governance problems, which have always been there, so bad institutions. So oligarchs, corruption, you know, that, that sort of stuff, that, uh, these things that have always kept the country backed, right, not allowed it to reform by itself. That can be countered by the Western interest in modernizing the country and real and tangible presence in this process. Like Poland, Slovakia and the others were also assisted very heavily. They were pushed very strictly and this has developed their institutions. So uh, the same attention has to be devoted to Ukraine, right? If the West just turns away and looks at other problems, that would be a mistake.
0: You said that if Russia invades again in seven years, do you feel like that's a possibility? I know in the West, the thought is that this will be it when this particular phase of this war ends.
4: I don't know where this kind of thinking in the West comes from. I mean, this war is driven by very deep things within Russia itself. And massive changes has to happen in Russia itself for conflict not to be in the cards. So, and I don't see these changes happening as of now course we will see but uh, the very corrupt and very problematic society which they have constructed where a few people capture the state and use it to extract massive resources from the population at the same time keeping the population poor and indoctrinated with very toxic fascist i would say ideas right The system by definition drives them to conflict this was unavoidable They have what they call security concerns, which are, in fact, concerns for their regime, right? They try to blame the U.S. or the EU for provoking some kind of coward revolution, and those are crazy conspiracy theories. What really happens is that uh, Russia, Ukraine, and other countries are border to border to normal democratic Europe, and people see the difference in lifestyles quality of life and they get these ideas you cannot avoid that you can only avoid it by closing the borders again by building up the iron curtain like the old soviet union did by definition the very existence of the eu and the u.s is a threat to the russian regime not to russia as a country not to the people but to the kremlin regime because the people constantly see that they're being screwed (laughs) to keep the people docile and to keep uh, control kremlin needs to look for enemies and threats to keep the population control right and keep extracting those resources and then they start creating this fascist ideology and then this brings the necessity to invade other countries especially ukraine because ukraine is an example of a revolution where a corrupt regime like putin's was thrown out and after that putin could not not react right mm. the war started in 2014 he invaded because the corrupt autocratic regime of yanukovych very similar to putin uh, maybe weaker was brought down by the people and the same could happen in russia and that's why putin attacked and so if this system in russia is not dismantled and the normal modern democratic state does not arise the reasons for the war will not go anywhere
0: If Putin does get brought down himself, the man, what do you think might replace him?
4: Might be something worse. Might be someone of the same type, but let's say smarter and with more room to maneuver, who will back down a bit, but try to preserve the regime. Uh, Might be someone crazy, some kind of uncontrolled military coup, maybe some crazy general with even more fascist ideas. This can happen as well. I mean, whether this can be a kind of democratic, coward revolution, like what happened in Ukraine. I don't see the conditions for that in Russia. The people are really indoctrinated.
0: You are listening to Ukraine 242. I am Anne Levine reporting from WOMR. Back to my conversation with our guest, Pavlo Kuchta. He was the Minister of Economy to President Petro Poroshenko and to President Volodymyr Zelensky. Using the comparison, which many people use in this case of Putin's Russia to Hitler's Germany, Pavlo, once Hitler was gone, that was it. It was over. Is there Mm -hmm. any way you can see something like that happening in Russia? Remember that
4: Germany was simply occupied, and the Allied powers fully controlled the German state for a time. And the Soviet Union in the east constructed GDR, German Democratic Republic, which was a communist state, right, of a very different sort. So who controlled the territory was the one who built it up. And I I don't envisage at this point some kind of occupation of Russia. I don't think anyone wants that or is planning that. I don't see any... Any reason to talk about this, right? So it will be Russians sorting themselves out for better or worse at this point. But I actually think that this Hitler comparison is uh, perhaps emotionally fulfilling, but the Russian state is a fascist state rather than a Nazi state. I think that's the relevant comparison.
0: Could you explain the difference?
4: Russia is of a different sort. You see, the military was not capable of taking Ukraine. It turned out to be a paper tiger because of corruption that hold everything out. Hitler had a strong, well-functioning state at his disposal, like a very strong evil machine marching across Europe, which the force of the largest nations of the world had to be brought against it to stop it, And because he had an efficient military machine, administrative machine. Putin does not have that. Russia is not a strong state as Hitler's Germany was. It's corrupt. Everyone is stealing. Everyone is embezzling nepotism everywhere, incompetence on all levels. So when it actually starts challenges in some kind of combat, be it military or economic or something, it loses because this kind of state cannot compete. It is too corrupt for that. What it does, where its danger lies, is that it constantly tries to spread corruption around. So these information wars that Russia was waging in Western democracy for a while were exactly this kind of thing. They are not trying to win by their ideology. They are trying to promote the worst politicians they can find in the West, to promote conflict. They're trying to corrupt. That's their weapon. The same thing happens in the economy, and they bring dirty business practices. And this is felt extremely in the countries close to them. Pro Russian politician is, by definition, corrupt and dirty, usually mafia like, damaging to institutions. So let's be frank, Russia does not pose any conventional military danger to NATO, right? These talks of Russia attacking Baltics or attacking Poland, if they come to a conventional clash with the forces of NATO, they will be defeated very, very quickly. But they do possess us in though So we don't know how how well maintained that nuclear arsenal is, given what we've saw from their military. But still they do.
0: Have the sanctions imposed against Russia by the United States and other Western countries been successful?
4: Oh, yeah, sure. Definitely Western sanctions hit hard. I don't think they were ever intended or. Maybe it was not even possible to just collapse Russian economy in a nutshell, although it was tried to launch a full-blown crisis in Russia and by that to throw Russia out of the war. But they managed to avoid the crisis. Putin gave economic governance over to free market economists in the beginning of his reign, and he allowed them to build a system which is fairly robust. And this has allowed them to avoid a macroeconomic crisis. But of course they are in dire straits, they will not be able to develop. They are locked out of capital markets. They've reversed 30 years of foreign direct investment. They are unbankable. They are uninvestable. They are unable to finance themselves. And the only thing going for them is that that they are still a large commodity producer who still has stuff to sell. But that's it.
0: How is Ukraine helping the person who has lost their business or lost their job and they have no income How are they paying the bills, keeping the heat on, buying the groceries?
4: Mm, It's tough. It's tough for the people here. Ukraine essentially only finances military expenditures, salaries of people employed by the state, and social payment, which are mostly pensions. Some support programs were launched for people temporarily unemployed, for uh, cheaper loans for businesses. But these are all simply limited in scope because not enough money is on the table for them.
0: How could we help with that? the United States, or name a country?
4: Mm, It's a job for the international financial institutions, like World Bank, for example, and the IMF.
0: Are the World Bank and the IMF doing anything currently to help out Ukraine, or are there plans in the works? Uh, I
4: believe there is an IMF program in the works. The World Bank is certainly helping by funding. They are working on Ukraine reconstructions. Uh, But we have to understand that They are large bureaucratic organizations with very clear mandates. And beyond these mandates, they're just not fit for the purpose. It's actually maybe also more of a job for bilateral partners like the U.S. and maybe the EU as a whole. So it's a question of broadening this program of support for Ukraine to not only military support and the budget support designed to just keep the budget flowing, but also economic support. And this can be designed in different ways. If the public approach is taken, what would a recovery program be? How large would it be? What would it be funded with? Will the Russian assets that are frozen in international banks be used to fund this public program as reparations for the damage Russia did? Then it would be Russia paying with its own money. ...for what it did. So I think these assets should be confiscated rather than any kind of financing from Western taxpayers. Or will it be a private sector program where these money would be allocated as a form of collateral, for example, to large international banks... ...to finance investment projects in Ukraine as a way to get cheap financing for projects in Ukraine? And I believe if the private sector approach is chosen... With the public sector participating together with the private sector and helping uphold the rules for the private sector, helping to give the private sector the best framework to work in, then I believe the reconstruction of Ukraine can be very successful can lead to an economic miracle, to a very fast levels of economic growth, and can generate enough resources for Ukraine to be ready to get into the EU, ready to get into NATO, and strong enough to defend itself by itself. And then we would keep the region safe. And we can avoid the next war, let's say. Otherwise, I believe at some point down the line, this will lead to a new conflict.
0: I know that you completely support the government and Zelensky as commander-in-chief. And Ukraine as a whole. However, I cannot help but be very curious about why you left the Zelensky government.
4: Oh, there were some disagreements with uh, what political course was taken. There was a change of government, uh, certain reforms slowed down. Also, there were some personal issues on my side related mainly to tiredness. By that time, I worked eight years in the government. The combination of that led to my resignation. Uh, But again, I mean, during the war, this is all old story. We stay united and we fight the common enemy.
0: What is President Zelensky like?
4: So he was a newcomer when I was in the government. It was clear he did not understand much of what was happening at that point. At the same time, I think he has pretty, you know, good intuitions. He watches people. He notices things. It was clear back then already. So he's a strong person. And we clearly saw that since he was not afraid to stay in Kiev and take the brunt of the attack. The fact that we had a president who had the guts to stand and fight, to stay and had an understanding of communications, to clearly communicate this to the people and to the army to keep everyone fighting, this was very, very beneficial. So in this regard, he did his job really well.
0: Do you think that prior presidents would have been as successful as commanders-in-chief?
4: A war like that, it's being fought by the whole nation, right? Never one man. So the success that Ukraine has now is driven by a very large amount of work that was done in the previous years, particularly after 2014, after the revolution, by very, very many people on different levels who have created at least some institutions that were working, who have rebuilt the military by the Yanukovych, who preserved macroeconomic stability and helped shore up everything so that the economy was able to withstand the shock of the war and not collapse immediately. And people prepared themselves and were ready to stand and fight and not give up. And even if you look at how the war actually happened, a lot of decisions are being taken by the commanders on the ground in Ukraine. That's why Ukrainian military is successful against the Russians. The Russians are very centralized. Everything has to go up top. The guy at the top has to decide everything in Ukraine. It's not like that. You know, people take initiative. So it's a people's war, you know, and everyone contributed their part.
0: Unlike most Americans' perceptions, this war has been going on since 2014. And Mm -hmm. this has been a huge escalation, but also a huge difference in response in Ukraine. What has happened?
4: Well, the whole country was attacked what happened in 2014 was a hybrid aggression which russians are better at. they aimed not at them winning but strengthening forces of corruption and malgovernance when they just bluntly attack militarily they've convinced themselves that they are like the german nazis but this is not the kind of thing they're suited to
0: i have a personal question to ask you You and your wife come from different administrations, different political parties, and how have you worked that out?
4: I think our viewpoints are actually very, very, very much aligned. In general, understanding as to where our country is headed, right? that we wanted to become a modern, successful, civilized country, that's what was the problem. And it's more than just corruption in the sense of bribes or kickbacks. It's worse than that. It's a fight between a society where ultimately your competence, who you are, determines what you can achieve, which is not what the West is, but what the Western societies strive to be, versus a society built on manipulation, intrigue, not on merit. That's what Soviet Union was. That's why our communism ultimately failed, right? And it's always keeping everyone behind. That's why these societies collapse when faced off against the West, because ultimately no one wants to live like that. So that's the fight of our lives, <laughs> and the war between Russia and Ukraine right now is a part of that fight.
0: You mentioned The Fight of Our Lives, which is the book title of Yulia Mendel's book. Are you a writer?
4: Uh, Actually, I have a kind of book slash a report on reforms of Ukraine. It's an overview of reforms of Ukraine as of 2018, released when we had a big project, a high-level advisory group, uh, with two people who were very prominent Eastern European reformers, it was Leszek Balcerowicz, he was essentially the person who reformed Poland, and with Ivan Miklos, who was the vice prime minister of Slovakia, who was the person who reformed Slovakia. And I was their deputy in this group, and we were advising the government of Prime Minister Groysman, so under the previous administration. At the end of this project, we wrote a book outlining the history of reforms in Ukraine, what was done in the years after the Revolution of Dignity, and where it needs to be heading. So I think it's called Reforms in Ukraine, What Was Done, Why Not More, and How to Fix It. It's for people working on reforms, for governance specialists.
0: Reforms in Ukraine. And is that in Ukrainian or in English also?
4: It's in Ukrainian and in English. I think if you Google it, you can find it.
0: You've been incredibly generous with your time. And I wish you and your wife the very best. Thank you.
4: It was a big uh, pleasure.
0: Stay safe.
4: (laughs) Thank you. Very, very nice talking to
0: you. It was really a pleasure. Let's stay in touch. Absolutely. Thank you, Pablo.
4: Goodbye. Goodbye.
0: Our thanks to Pablo Kuchta. Acting Minister of Economy in Ukraine. He is the co-author of "Reforms in Ukraine After Revolution of Dignity," editing by Ursula Rudenberg, recording by Michael Levine. To see pictures of our guests and for more information, go to ukraine242.com. If you wish to send a message of encouragement to the Ukrainian people, please call five one zero eight eight three. 3115 and record your message. It will be translated into Ukrainian and broadcast throughout Ukraine on Kraina FM's 24 station radio network. This is Ann Levine. Until next week on Ukraine 242.